1 Timothy chapter 6, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, as we now turn our attention towards uh, your word in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we pray that your spirit would help us. Lord, give us insight, give us wisdom. If the, the, the need in our hearts this morning is to be convicted of sin, Lord, give us that conviction so that we would turn and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Or about two or three years ago, I began to receive some daily emails with headlines in the subject line about churches and ministries and pastors who had made the news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, they had gotten in trouble with the law or they were mired in some kind of public controversy. I didn't remember signing up to receive these emails, but you know how that, that goes. They just kind of end up showing up in your, in your, your inbox, and I uh, wasn't really familiar with the organization uh, behind them, but I soon found out that the organization was expanding and had uh, just relaunched its website, and so they had be- begun these uh, daily email blasts uh, to uh, uh, their e- email list of people that had some connection with uh, Christian ministry or church. I did. I did recognize the leader of the of the ministry, um, and I trusted his his name. And so I checked out their website, and it had many different articles reporting on um, and exposing these ministries, churches, and pastors or public Bible teachers who were mired in controversy. Um, just wanted to, to to kind of make people aware of these ministries in case you want to make a donation or you are somebody that has been making donations to these uh, different churches and ministries. So it's definitely not a website where you would want to find your church's name listed. Um, It's called Ministry Watch, founded in 1998 by Rusty and Carol Leonard. Uh, Again, a ministry dedicated to transparency and accountability among Christian Ministries. It maintains a database with two decades of financial and other information from 
some of the largest Christian ministries operating in our country. So if you want to see how the ministry that you have been financially supporting uses your money, well, this would be a good website to check out. So here are just a few of the most recent headlines uh, that were listed on the website. Liberty Health Share, a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, left thousands in debt as it built a family empire. Another one, uh, Love for the Least, that's the name of the ministry, Love for the Least, lacks structure and financial oversight. And then, Texas pastor and son plead guilty to theft from elderly members. So just by taking a few minutes to look around on that, on that website, you'll realize that there sure are a lot of ministries and churches that identify themselves with the name of Jesus Christ who are getting the wrong kind of attention. What lies behind many of them is a love for money. Imagining that godliness is a means of financial gain. And so it makes what we read here in 1 Timothy 6 all the more sobering. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs or many sorrows. A desire for wealth was a problem for churches and Christians in the first century that Paul is writing into here with this uh, letter to 1 Timothy. And it is still a problem today. And we are, we are shown here that it really all comes down to what we believe about what God has done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we satisfied with Christ? Are we satisfied with his work? What he has done for us? Or do we believe that we need more? We need more than him. We need more than what he's done for us. If we are content in Christ, we will save ourselves from many troubles. Our main theme then from this passage is knowing Christ and trusting his saving work will give us contentment in every situation. Knowing Christ and trusting in his saving work will give us contentment in every situation. So I, I organized our passage then under these, these three main headings this morning, all having to do with the theme of the passage that is our being content in Christ. The first heading then is you can glorify God even in the most difficult of circumstances. You can glorify God even in the, in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. There, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. When we hear verses like these in the Bible, we, we tend to, to cringe a little bit. That's because uh, we are so far re removed from the cultural context of the first century uh, Roman Empire. Uh, society has changed quite a bit since then, particularly in regard to economics and our views on slavery. It's mainly because of the influence of Christianity. Uh, 
the influence of, of, of Christianity uh, that it has had on Western civilization. During the first century in the Roman Empire, slavery was legal and very, very common. Uh, there were, however, different types of slavery. Uh, one type of slavery that was very common was indentured slavery. That is when someone or a family has indentured themselves to, to work for a, a more wealthy family or a person uh, in order to pay off a debt or just simply to provide for their own family. For the great majority of the population in this time, you were either a slave or you could own a slave. You were wealthy enough to, to own a slave. And that's why we see Paul in the epistles directly mentioning slaves or bondservants here and also mentioning or speaking towards the rich or the wealthy uh, towards the end of chapter 6 uh, because they had the wealthy and slaves in every church. Another example of this is in Acts chapter 16 where the Apostle Paul uh, first brings the gospel to Philippi and the first two individuals in Philippi that Luke tells us about are one, a very wealthy woman named Lydia and then a, a slave girl whom Paul freed from being possessed by a demon. So a good number of church members in, 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 in those days were slaves as well as those who owned slaves. And this is what we see here in these two verses. Paul is addressing slaves and how they are to honor God while relating to their masters, both masters who are not believers and those that are. So right away as we consider this, we realize that because of the gospel, slaves and their masters, if they have both come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, were considered to be equals before God. Both the slaves and the master were sinners who stood on the same level ground before God. Both of them were in great need of being rescued from condemnation. And the way of salvation was the same for both of them. It was only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If both slave and master are in Christ, then as Paul shows us in verse 2, they are brothers. They are brothers. They are equals before God in the same family that God has brought together. The gospel transforms the way that we are to understand ourselves in God's eyes. If you are considered to be a very important person in human society, you're, you're wealthy or you're a successful business owner or you're an elected politician, you are still someone who is in desperate need of God's saving grace. And you can only receive that grace in the very same way as everyone else. Through humbling yourself before God, through repenting of your sin, through confessing your need for forgiveness and righteousness, and putting all of your hope and trust in Christ Jesus for it. And it's exactly the same way of salvation for the slave or those who are just scraping by paycheck to paycheck. Now the instructions that bondservants were, were, were given here was to honor their masters, whether they be believers or not, while they serve them. So in other words, godliness isn't just for Sundays, it is for every day. They were to seek to honor Christ while they worked throughout the week in their respective situations. 
The purpose for it was so that the name of God and the teaching or the doctrine would not be reviled. This reveals a very key principle for us today. That is, if you are a believer, and especially if you are a believer and a member of a local church, then you represent God and the Lord Jesus Christ wherever you go and whatever you do in the world. And I wonder, does that ever come to your mind when you show up at work in the morning, show up at the office, when you go out to do your, short, your, your chores in the morning on the farm? You think about, you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. You represent what he taught while you do your work, especially while you interact with other people. That the kind of work you do will, will influence what others will think about God and the gospel. Well, it is exactly how it is, and, and our Lord wants us to know that. So that's why we see that here in 1 Timothy 6. Now, I understand some working environments are difficult. It may not all be joy for you to get up in the morning and to go to work. It may just take all the energy that you can spare just to show up. And, and how, how then can you also be expected to provide this, this faithful Christian witness there as well? Or if you are a Christian student going to a, a public school, it can be a, a great challenge to be in the midst of a, of a class where you feel like you're singled out, where the great majority of your fellow students and, and even your teachers seem to be antagonistic towards what you believe. Well, we live in a fallen world, and we will find ourselves in many difficult circumstances when it comes to work, when it comes to school, when it just comes to, to, to living in this world that has turned away from God. Kind of like the slaves that Paul was addressing here. Some of them worked for believing masters, but probably most of them did not. And yet, they could still glorify God, they could still display the transforming work of the gospel by how they worked, by how they served their masters. If they had the peace of contentment in their relationship with Christ, they could glorify God. So if you are content in Christ, if you are content in what he has accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection, in the fact you stand before God in his righteousness and that you trust that he is the one guiding your life, leading you through it, then, then that will give you the strength. That will give you the hope to get up in the morning, uh, to, to, to go to wherever it is you work and serve and serve the Lord in that difficult job or circumstance that you are in with contentment. You'll be able to do it all in the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And secondly, we see that false teachers show their discontentment with Christ. This is in verses 3 through 5. So false teachers show their discontentment with Christ. The end of verse 2 there, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, 
evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So this is really getting at the heart of false teaching and false teachers. False teachers show their discontentment with Christ. They are not satisfied with Christ's work or who Christ is. So they have to either add to Christ or subtract from him. Christ is not enough for them. And they, 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 they try to lead others away from Christ with their teaching and their lifestyles. Christ is at the center of Christianity. If you get something wrong about Christ, then everything else you teach about salvation, about the Christian life, is going to be off as well. It's going to be mis- misleading. And we are given here the primary question to ask in discerning false teaching from orthodox or right teaching. That is, what do they think of Christ? What do they say about Christ? What do they teach regarding the person of Christ, who he was, and the work of Christ, what he accomplished? Again, look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the teaching says that Christ was God, but not truly man, it's false. If the teaching says that Christ was human, that he was man, but not truly God, then it is false. If the teaching tries to make the claim that that, that Christ's death didn't really satisfy God's wrath against our sins, then it is saying that, that Christ didn't accomplish what the New Testament teaches that he did accomplish. And so it's misleading. It's, it's, it's getting us away from the saving gospel. It is trying to say his death was either unnecessary or it served some other purpose than making atonement with God for our sins, which is the very thing that we as sinners needed most. But what Paul's saying here goes even one step further. This is saying that if anyone does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then he is a false teacher leading people away from Christ. So that is anyone who disagrees with or rejects the words of the New Testament. The words of the New Testament are the words of Christ. They were written by the apostles who were called and sent by the Lord Jesus to teach the gospel. The apostles speak for and represent the Lord Jesus and his teaching. So what this is getting at here is that we are to be aware of anyone who claims to be a teacher or a preacher, but who disagrees with the words of the New Testament. There are more and more today who claim to be Christians, who are pastors, teachers in in churches and in seminaries and, and in Christian colleges who have been trying to make the case that the apostles in the New, in the, the New Testament here just got it wrong when they wrote about sex, when they wrote about marriage, when they wrote what they did about, about gender roles. They, they just plain disagree with what Paul wrote about those who practice homosexuality not being able to enter the, the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6, 
or they disagree with what Paul taught about gender roles in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, that, that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and that husbands are to, to lead their wives as the head in the marriage relationship. They, they, they also disagree with, with Paul's understanding of gender roles in the church, as we looked at in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that women are not to be in positions of authority over men in the church, that men are to take the lead in, in teaching doctrine, in, in, in managing the household of God. They disagree with the words of the New Testament, and Paul would argue, as he does here, that they do not agree then with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the next two verses, in verses 4 and 5, we are shown the character of the false teachers. We're also shown the result of false teaching within a church and the motivation of the false teachers, why they are doing what they're doing, really. So first note how the character of a false teacher is described here in verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So every false teacher who disagrees with the words of Christ and is trying to lead people away from biblical Christianity has a very high opinion of himself. He would have to. He would have to, for he puts himself, he puts his own understanding of truth above Christ, above the apostles, above Scripture. Now note the result when false teaching rises up within a church. Here's what happens there, again, verse 4. Which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So one thing we have to remember is that when there is a controversy within a church or a denomination, it is never brought on because someone just cares too much about theology. Someone just, 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 just cares too much. He's, he's going a little bit, you know, he's pressing the envelope a little bit too far in trying to be careful about what the Bible actually says. Or because someone, you know, just cares, um, you know, too much about the statement of faith that the church um, has, has established. It's always because of some apparent teaching that has entered the church and now... The pastors, the church leaders need to address that and correct it. So when the, when the church has disunity over doctrine, those who are trying to keep the church in line with biblical teaching are not to be blamed for that disunity. Instead, it is those who are trying to move away from orthodoxy and are introducing a different understanding or a new way of thinking about the teaching. The result, then, is friction between people in the church and others uh, are led astray by them who are then deprived of the truth. So doctrine unites. It does not divide. Teaching a different doctrine is what divides Christians. And, and note here at the end of verse 5, which is often the motivation, or what's often the, the, the motivation here of the false teachers. Verse 5 Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. One of the most popular false versions of Christianity that is out there today, uh, spread through our country and is spreading now throughout the world, is the health 
and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. This is a gospel, quote unquote, that teaches what the Bible or what the devil wants you to be uh, poor. Uh, the devil wants you to be sick. The devil wants you to be discouraged. But Jesus, of course, wants to bless you, wants to deliver you from your poverty, deliver you from your sickness, deliver you from uh, being discouraged. And so if you have faith in Jesus and in his power, he will bless you with wealth, will bless you with prosperity, will bless you with good health. In fact, that's why he came to die and to defeat the devil, to grant you those blessings. You just have to believe Jesus for those blessings, and, and the teachers and preachers of the gospel, or of this gospel, display that their teaching is true by how wealthy and healthy and prosperous they are. And some of them are exorbitantly wealthy. But of course, the reason why they receive so much wealth is, well, from the donations that people have given towards their ministries. They like what they're hearing, and they provide them with more and more money. When they ask for donations, they always promise that the Lord will bless those who give them with even greater prosperity. So they're giving them money in hopes that then they will also receive wealth. We are being told here, beware, beware. Beware of those whose teaching and lifestyle show that their motivation for doing ministry is for financial gain. They may seem like they're being blessed, but really with each dollar that they swindle out of the hands of those that they have deceived, they're storing up more and more wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. If you pray for them, pray for their repentance. Finally, resting in what the Lord has provided will keep you from many troubles. This is verses 6 through 10. Resting with the Lord has provided will keep you from many troubles. So here Paul uses a little play on words. There in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So a little, little play on words here it gives us a wonderful, memorable verse uh, that will help to guide us and to encourage us to continue to follow Christ in the midst of a culture that persistently whispers to us, you're missing out, you're missing out, come on, just, just give up this faith, give up this obedient stuff, because you're really missing out. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It is great gain. Fearing the Lord and living under the rule of his word, trusting in his grace is great gain if you are content. He is saying the false teachers were, were not wrong in thinking that godliness was a way to receive gain, but they made a fundamental error in their pursuit of gain. They sought it without having any contentment in Christ. They were trying to seek blessing without Christ, and it just can't be done. If you are not content with Christ, you will never be satisfied. If your motivation is just to receive gain in this life, primarily financial gain in this life, well, your desires are, are far too small. 
That's what he focuses on then in verses 9 and 10. If you are not content with Christ, and if your desires are only for material blessings in this life, you will not only not ever be content, you will end up bringing on yourself and probably others great pain and distress. Again, verse 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. These are grave warnings here for us, brothers and sisters, grave warnings. In, in his time serving as an apostle, planting churches, traveling from city to city throughout the Roman Empire, Paul had seen examples of how this desire for worldly wealth just ruins people, divides churches, destroys households. All of it would, all it would take for us uh, to see countless examples of the same thing is just to spend about 10 minutes on that Ministry Watch website I mentioned earlier. I'm sure you could also, you know, just think in your own minds of those you know, families, churches who have suffered many sorrows because of this craving for more and more money. Last year at this time, I was on a sabbatical, and I spent some time with a good friend of mine who was a, a youth group leader for me when I was in high school. Um, Paul has now... Uh, uh, age quite a bit. He's, he's uh, uh, dealing with uh, Parkinson's disease and just always kind of stuns me. Um, you know, when I see him uh, after a long while, how much, how much he, he seems to have aged and how much the disease has taken control um, of his body. And when I, I went to see him, he was actually babysitting his seven-year-old grandson at the time, and his grandson was just so excited to see me. Here's a younger guy who can do things, and he was so excited, and he, of course, loved baseball. Paul told him that I also enjoyed baseball, so he just was so excited to come for, for me to come see him, and, and uh, when, I, when I got there, he immediately started to talk to me about baseball and telling me all about how he plays baseball and, and, and his team, and he went and got out some of his baseball cards that he had with him. He was showing me all the different baseball cards and explaining to me who the player was and which team he plays for and his stats. And he just reminded me so much of myself uh, when I was in seventh grade or, or when I was seven years old. Uh, and then we went outside and uh, he had me uh, pitch to him. He wanted to show me how good he was uh, at batting. He was just, just, just thrilled to have me do that and um, did that for a while. Then we had lunch and and talked about a lot of other things together. But uh, when, when I left, then a few hours later, um, he, he begged his, his grandpa Paul to, to pitch to him. Uh, and of course, his grandpa obliged and, and did his best, um, although he can't move very well, uh, to pitch to his grandson. And uh, he could just do, do enough you know, to toss a few balls to him. And as I was backing out of the driveway and, and, and watching them uh, have fun, uh, enjoying that together, it it struck me. I knew this kid's other grandpa. I knew his dad's dad. And uh, he had been a great athlete too when he was young. Uh, he, had, he had played all the sports for my high school. He had uh, particularly excelled in baseball. Um, and so it just kind of made sense. Here's his grandson enjoying uh, baseball. and he's, he's pretty good at it too. 
Um, but he didn't know his other grandpa. He never met him. His other grandpa had consistently got himself into financial trouble, committing fraud, uh, generating massive amounts of debt, ended up spending time in jail. And eventually, the, the, this craving for wealth led him to piercing himself and his family with a massive amount of grief. For in order to escape his financial troubles, he had taken his own life about five years before his grandson was born. His grandson doesn't know, but the adults in his family know full well about the senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Discontent leads to disaster. They had experienced firsthand how the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is so because, of course, when you love money, you are going to serve money. You will worship it. The love of money is idolatry. It is your God, your, your master. And Jesus warned us in the Gospels, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So how do we keep ourselves from this kind of de destruction? What can we do to not pierce ourselves or our families with these many pangs? Paul's answer is, in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. We must know Christ. We must know Christ. We must experience the joy of his salvation. We must know that in him we have all that we could ever need. Knowing Christ will open our eyes and our hearts up to far greater horizons of joy and pleasure than just material riches can bring. For the one who desires wealth has their heart and sights set on this life only, on just being able to enjoy their wealth for the few years that they get here, which of course are so unpredictable. How long are you going to be able to enjoy your money? How long are you going to be able to enjoy the new home that you just built? How, many, how, how long are you going to be able to enjoy the the, 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 the millions that you've saved up. How long? No one knows. No one can say. Maybe 40 years or, or maybe four years. Maybe an, uh, another 20 years or maybe just another 20 days. We just don't know. And then we need to consider the all-important question, after death, then what? Then what? Hebrews 9 27 says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And your money will not help you then. Your retirement portfolio will not be able to help you then either. For as verse 7 says here, something we all know to be true, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. The only thing that will help us on that day is whether or not we are in Christ. 
whether or not we came to know Christ as our life, Christ as our salvation. We will only be helped when we face God in judgment if we are content in Christ and in his grace in this life. So my friend, are you content in him? Do you know Christ this morning as the one who will not only save you from God's judgment, but who will also give you eternal life in heaven? Are your treasures only here on earth, or are you storing up treasure in heaven? Discontent leads to disaster, but contentment in Christ will lead to the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. God's word is here telling us that what ultimately truly matters in this life is what matters in the life to come. So as we close, I want you to think about what you have been given by Christ. What has he blessed you with? You are here this morning, so you still have your life, and that's a great blessing. You also have a church family who who loves you, who are glad to see that you're here. You have people who share your faith and, and who want to help you to grow in your faith in Christ, who will help you to do that. You have food and clothing. We definitely ate well downstairs prior to the service. We've all been given more than enough in food and clothing and shelter and praise God for that. That is a wonderful blessing. Many of you have family members who love you, who provide for you, who sacrifice for you, especially if you are children or high school students. So praise God for that. He has provided you with so much, and you all have had the opportunity to know and be forever reconciled to God, the creator of all things, who holds your life in his hand. You can be his You can be his adopted son or daughter if you repent of your sin and unbelief and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. He has already made the way for you through the cross and his resurrection. So come to him. Trust in him. Follow him. If you found Christ, if you know him, then as the song goes, you found a treasure that can't be taken. You found a well that won't run dry. O worldly pleasure, be now forsaken. Behold what love, what life is mine. Christ is all. Christ is all. My song will ever be. Christ is all. Let's pray. Yes, Father in heaven, as we uh, think about all that Christ is for us. We pray that you would help us to see him, to know him, to love him, and to follow him, and that our hearts would be full of him. We pray, Lord, you would help us more and more seek to put to death envy, greed, this desire for wealth, this desire to be rich, and instead, Father, help us to see that the greatest things in life that we can work for or what lies in the life to come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.